And we look to see Christ in John 20 today. John 20, verses 19 to 31, will be the focus of our study of Jesus this morning. But we find ourselves in, in the middle of a story that we started, well, a year and a half ago, but <laughs> the most recent part of this story, two weeks ago. So I think it'd be helpful if I actually begin by reading John 20, verses 11 through 18. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to him and said in Aramaic, Rabboni which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. When we last left the account of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, Mary was the only person in the know. The other guys knew that the body was missing. It seems that John believed that maybe Jesus was in some way alive, but he had no conception yet of physical resurrection on the earth. Mary's the only one that really knows is what's going on. And what we see here is that she's given a simple command. You go and you tell the disciples that I'm alive and in the flesh. And that the, 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 the resurrection plan the, is on track. The, the post-crucifixion plan is, is working Everything's right on schedule. Now, an unbroken reading of these few verses would invigorate ex- excitement and anticipation, right? Like, you're, you're thinking, like, if we, as we zoom next over to, the, like, the next scene, and it's the disciples in that room, you're thinking, like, you're going to find a party in there. Like, Mary told them. It doesn't say Mary intended to tell them, but got distracted. Like, she actually told them that he's alive, that, that he saw, 
them, I mean, that he would see them, that he was, he was right on schedule. I mean, I, I don't know what the mood of the room like should have been, but it's going to be somewhere between like dance party uh, or just uh, solemn appreciation for the moment, depending on your personality. That's at least what I expect to see. I mean, the Son of God has entered into humanity. He is alive. He not only crucified himself to satisfy God's wrath for sin, but he also conquered the grave. He told Mary to tell them that the plan is right on track, that the disciples who were promised a special part in this plan are going to see him before he ascends to the Father. We saw that back in John, by the way, 16, verses 16 to 24. I won't take the time to read it, but you may remember in that upper room discourse, Jesus said, look, I'm going away to the Father. You're not going to see me anymore. But at one point, he like calms them down and says, hey, before I go, you will see me. It'll only be for a little while, but you will see me before I go. So like they know, like once they hear that the resurrection program is on schedule, they should be expecting a physical visit from Jesus at any moment. I hate to minimize this with trite and trivial illustrations, but it kind of just reminds me of like your favorite uncle says he's in town and he's going to stop by for a visit. Like there's an anticipation that, that you will physically see him. There should be some excitement. There should be some energy in the room. But what do we actually find when we make our way to the text? Look at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Stop there for a second. I don't know about you, but I'm expecting a party. I'm expecting some boldness, some anticipation, some confidence. And what does the text say? It says that the doors, plural, were locked. Basic uh, Greco-Roman housing situation. You need to get the architecture for a second. Pretty much everybody had a courtyard. And that could have a gate. And they would use something like a deadbolt, not the same technology as our deadbolt, but the old school kind. You know, like a, a bar going through some rings attached to both sides of something. So that could be locked. And then the house would have also a lock. And then in larger homes where rooms could be rented out, each of those places would have a lock. So potentially... We've got a bunch of grown men in the light of day still. It's evening, but it's the light of day behind two or three locked doors. Now, this is like the equivalent of, of children who get scared and lock the door and then throw a bunch of chairs in front of it and then hide under a blanket. Grown men. When was the ever time, I say this to the men in the room, when was the last time you were with a bunch of dudes and you got so scared that you're like, we're going to have to lock all the doors? I mean, can you imagine, like, what is going on? I think masculinity is alive and well in first century Palestine. 
So what is happening with these guys? Why aren't they more confident than this? Mark actually adds this in his, uh, in his note in Mark 16, 11. It says, when they heard that he was alive from Mary and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. That's the interesting part. It's not that they didn't hear her, it's that they didn't believe her. John believes in some way, other passages indicate that Jesus and somehow showed up to Peter, but whatever Peter and John know, has it convinced the group? And so they're, even though they have, listen, this is important, even though they have eyewitness testimony of a risen Lord, they don't believe it. That's really important. And yet, Jesus cannot be kept from fulfilling his promise to them. Locked doors will not hold him back. He said, I will see you. I will be with you. And what does the text go on to say? Look at verse 19 again. Jesus came and stood among them. John tells us about the locked doors to let you know that something unique is going on with Jesus Just as he had miraculously slipped past the grave linens and left them behind in his tomb, so also he slips through the door. Despite their best security measures. And and, and, and note this, please. What is the first thing that he says to them in this miraculous appearance? Now, don't get ahead. Don't read ahead. (laughs) <laughs> to catch the significance of this, I want you to pause for a moment. And this is, this is fun to do every once in a while. Like, if you were Jesus, what would be your first words? I, let me tell you what I would say. You, you get to know what angry dad Justin looks like. I think I would probably have showed up and said... Um, What in the world is going on here? Did I not tell you that I would show up physically before I left again? And did I not already send someone to you to let you know that I was coming? Why in the wide world are you cowering in fear in this room? I said that the plan is on schedule and you're acting like it's not. This is unacceptable. The kids are wincing because they've heard. But notice how our Lord comes to them. Notice the first words out of his mouth. He said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Peace be with you. This is admittedly none other than the standard Jewish greeting of the day. It's easy to spiritualize. But I think there is actually something significant about it. Shalom halakim, halakim shalom. That's the way the Jews greet one another. Shalom, peace, wholeness, wellness. So Jesus just says in this Greek way, Shalom, peace be unto you. 
And it could seem, it could seem just like hello, because everybody says hello. Everybody has to greet somebody in some way, and this is the way that they normally did it. I think that the Jewish hello is a little superior to the English one, because it's actually expressing something. I have no idea what hello means. I mean, if I were to like break it up to the root word, I don't like it. Or hi. What, what does hi mean? It's just like, hi. You know, like you just, I'm going to make a, a guttural acknowledgement of your existence. But the Jews, man, they had something going. Shalom, peace, wellness, wholeness. Now, when you hear the term peace, you're just thinking the cessation of hostilities. And yet for them, peace was something full-orbed, well-rounded. It, it doesn't just mean like there's, there's no fires at the moment or there's no battles going on. It means, as the old hymn says it, it is well. Wellness be with you. Wholeness be with you. And they had an interesting way of actually conveying this. Not only were they just saying like, hey, I hope that humanly speaking, you know, fortune favors you. I mean, they're working from a monotheistic mindset that the sovereign God is over control of everything. And when they say shalom, they have something deeper in mind. Because in the Old Testament, shalom was that ultimate end-time peace that would come only when the king of kings was ruling and reigning over the entire world. It's, an, it's a, pardon the big word here, an eschatological wish. It's an end-time wish. I pray that you experience that end-time fullness and wholeness. And here Jesus, listen to this, on the first day of the week... It's like it's a new time or something. It's like it's a new era, a new epoch. On the first day of the week, first thing that says to them, Shalom Halakim. Peace be to you. It's all good. He knows their struggle. He knows their fear. And he's totally fine with it. He says, it's fine. In fact, I know that you guys may have a hard time recognizing me. You don't expect to see dead people walking around. And so he proactively, listen to this, identifies himself by the scars of his crucifixion. How does he make himself known to them? It isn't like through the flexing of his own muscles. He's actually showing them the scars suffered on his, on their behalf. Like from now on, he makes himself known as not just the Lord, but the crucified Lord. He's compassionate with them. He's been crucified for them. I love this Jesus. I, I like this. This is, this is welcoming to my heart that sometimes struggles to believe. He gets it. He's expressing peace to them. He's evidencing that he's the crucified Lord. And I want you to notice this, friends. He's not just good with them like, okay, y'all messed that one up. But let's admit you drop the ball. I'm going to have to do a little bit of a line change here. I know we had original plans for y'all to continue my mission, but we're going to need to go with some better candidates. We're pulling you out of the game. He doesn't just say that he's good with them. He says that he wants to keep going with them. 
Notice this. You see it in verses 21 to 23. He's not just talking about peace and provision. He's talking about the opportunity that they have to continue his work. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now notice the context here. He's giving them this opportunity in peace. Like this is all is well, all is good. It's not like the world's going to fall to pieces if you can't get this job done. He's saying, I've got it under control. Peace be with you. But I want you to know something. I am still sending you into the world in the same way that I was sent into the world. The plan is still on schedule. He's putting them on mission. He's entrusting them with the responsibility. And this is not the great obligation. It is the great honor. They get to represent him in the world in his imminent absence. We sing it at this time of year. Hark the herald angels sing Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. That's the mission. You get to convey the reconciliation of holy God with sinful men through the sacrifice and resurrection of me, your Lord. They get to do that. They're going to be sent out. To, to be on mission, he says, I'm sending you to do the same. He already told them about this in John 15 and 16. He prayed it in John 17, 18. He's saying, look, you're still on the team. You're still in the game. But in the middle of this little speech, he does something that's kind of weird. I mean, be weird to me. He tells them that they're back in the game. He tells them that they're still on the team, and then he stops. He doesn't say anything. And, and your text says this, he breathed on them. He breathed on them. And I don't do this often, but please humor me for a moment. The text doesn't actually say he breathed on them. It just says he breathed. The reason I'm saying this is because whatever this action is, it's, it's symbolic. Like he's about to prefigure. He's going to prophesy something through an action. Do you remember those Old Testament prophets doing that? They would do some weird actions sometimes. Like they'd grab an almond uh, branch <laughs> and try to get at the flower. Or one guy like shaves his head. Or I mean, it's called an enacted prophecy. Jesus here is about to do an enacted prophecy, and therefore we need to know what the action is. Now, here's, here's, some, here's some fun stuff for lexical nerds in the room. The Greek word, uh, breathed, includes inhaling and exhaling. It includes both. So this is what I want you to see Jesus doing, and I'm going to tell you why it matters. He tells them, you're on mission, you're in the game. (sighs) Receive the Holy Spirit. And whoever you forgive has been forgiven. 
Whoever you withhold forgiveness from has had forgiveness withheld. What is going on here? Well, the key is breath. You know the word spirit in Greek? You actually could know this. This isn't. You could do this one on Jeopardy. It'd be in the $100 category, not the $500. Pneuma. Pneumonia, ever had it? Something wrong with the wind, the breath. Pneuma, spirit. Here it is. He, he gives them an object lesson of the spirit that comes from him and through him and out to them. He gives them a picture and he says, receive the Holy Spirit because they're going to need it for the work that they've got to do. In this mission that they're being sent to do, they're going to be representing God Almighty to sinners and conveying the means by which they can either be forgiven or not forgiven. I like that both were mentioned. It isn't just assumed that everybody they come in contact with as an apostolic missionary team will be forgiven. Some people will not be forgiven. And so the instrument of their mission will be none other than the conveying of the authorized gospel that he's entrusted to them. And as that happens, this is a huge responsibility to represent the forgiveness of God Almighty, and they will need divine help. They will need the Holy Spirit. And John John has already recorded that in 14 and 15 and 16. He says, you're going to have it. You're going to have the Spirit's help to take on this huge mission that would otherwise seem impossible. So the question gets asked, was this then where they received the Holy Spirit? No, obviously not. He's saying, when the Spirit does come, receive Him. I say that for two reasons. One, John makes it pretty clear that they're not filled with the Spirit as evidenced by the fact that in the next few verses, they're still going to be scared out of their minds, and some of them even quit and go back to fishing. Like, the full thing hasn't resonated with them, but once they are filled with the Spirit, they are bold and on mission and can't help but talk about Jesus. And then the second thing is, Acts makes it crystal clear that the Spirit actually came at Pentecost 40 days later, not here. Jesus is saying, the program for you to receive the Holy Spirit is still on schedule, all is well, you're included, he reveals himself to them, and this is just a beautiful thing, that that they would be able to express and represent the forgiveness of God to the people. Now, I say one thing here just for a a theological note because some could be concerned like, do we then get to extend and withhold forgiveness to people? (laughs) Like, is is that like our thing too? Um, Friends, the forgiveness being extended or withheld is tied directly to the biblical account of the gospel. When people believe the gospel... They have been forgiven. A church will even agree on that, and they baptize somebody, and they say, hey, we see that this person is truly believed. They're they're saying something. And guess what? The church sometimes will convey that some forgiveness has not been extended when they refuse to baptize someone, or when they tell someone who's been partaking of communion, we don't think you should be partaking of communion anymore. 
We aren't the ones who do the forgiving and the withholding of forgiveness. We're the ones who express God's opinion on the matter on the basis of what's already been revealed in the gospel. The point is here, friends, that the full pleasure of the risen Jesus, the power of the risen Jesus is present here, including them in his plan. And this is huge. This is huge. The crucified Jesus is indeed the risen Lord. And though they believe not the testimony of Mary, they do see him with their own eyes and hear him with their own ears. But this revelation, this belief, is closely connected to an objection. Look at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. (laughs) This is great writing. You're like, oh, the gang's all there. This is awesome. They're going to go off on mission. And then all of a sudden, John complicates things. He's like, oh, but I forgot to tell you. There was one guy who was not there. And here's the deal. He's, um, we're going to see his own little journey of faith. And it, it's going to, the story will validate our own personal desire for firsthand evidence, but it invites us into something better and more sure. It, it acknowledges our, we're all like, man, I wish I could see Jesus like they saw Jesus. Like, we get that. But what it's going to do is say, look, Thomas gets that too, but there's something even better than what Thomas and those guys got. Right, look, look at Verse 25, Thomas misses the big reveal, and whenever he shows back up, they're all excitedly telling them or him what they saw. Verse 25, so the other disciples told him, this is imperfect in the Greek, were telling him, kept telling him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe I mean, his, uh, his stated terms here are ultra-specific. I mean, he's like, all right, I've got, I've got three criteria for this to take place. If I'm ever going to believe, it's going to have to be seeing the nails in his hand, the nail prints in his hands. It needs to be touching those with my fingers. And then he gets really specific. These words are important, trust me. Placing my hand into his side. That's his criteria. And in the original, it's very strong. I will never, ever believe. It's a double negative. I will never, ever believe unless those things happen. Now, it's easy here for uh, self-righteous types to start beating up on Thomas. Uh, What is his famous nickname? Doubting Thomas. What's that guy's problem? But I want you to know, friends, he's not a total loser. Let's Let's acknowledge this, like, right at the outset. Jesus does not excoriate him for struggling to believe. He's not really doubting. You know what he's like? He's like half of you. He's pessimistic. You know, glass half full, glass half empty. I know who you are. I hear your complaints. And I appreciate glass half empty kind of people. Thomas is that. For sure. If you look at just the way Thomas is presented in the book of John, it's this very rational, careful kind of guy. He's just very realistic. And, and this, this is a good thing. Uh, he says in verse eleven sixteen, Thomas does. When they're about to, to go somewhere where the, it's a threatening situation, this is what he says, let us go also so that we may die with him. 
He thinks that, he, that all right, we're going to die. That's okay, I'm going to go anyway. We'll go die with him. He said, look, I'm just calling it like I see it. This is a, death, a deathly kind of situation. Like, I'm going. But th- I'm just telling you, we're going to die. <laughs> um, John 14, 5, Jesus is saying, I'm going to the Father. And I've made a way. And this is what Thomas says. Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Like, okay, that's cool that you're going to heaven and everything, but like, how, how do we get there? It's just asking the right questions, right? He's a realist. Thomas wanted concrete proof, not to satisfy his doubt, but probably to overcome his hopelessness. Like, he's like, okay, guys, I think that you've sold yourself on a convenient lie here. Like, this just doesn't happen. But persistent in unbelief, he remains until eight days later. Look at verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Peace be with y'all, actually. Notice that the doors are still locked. I, I don't know, like, it says that they were rejoiced and they were happy, but it just kind of makes me wonder, like, did they just get, like, you know, like, like, the reality set in when Jesus had disappeared for a few days, and they're like, maybe we dreamed it up? I don't know. <laughs> they're still scared. Maybe they're just trying to accommodate Thomas. Thomas is like, look, okay, I know you guys are all big and bold because you think you've seen Jesus, but I would prefer the doors to be locked, please. But either way, the doors are locked. Jesus shows up again. He shows up again, and lest you think he's like Casper the friendly ghost, notice what he says. Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? This is shocking. It's shocking for a couple of reasons. One, do you remember what happened with Mary earlier? We just read it. She wanted to hug him, and what happened? Jesus said, no, don't hug me. Do you remember why? It was because he was conveying to her, hey, look, the time for full embracing is not yet here. This is a transitional time. I am rounding the eschatological bases. Resurrection, ascension, return, ruling on the heavens and earth. Like, that's when you get to hug me. But like right now, it's not the time for that. I need you to go tell the disciples that they're still on mission. So notice that Jesus isn't afraid for people to touch him because he's like some kind of a ghost. That's not, that's not the case. Here he's actually inviting, in Thomas's case, okay, touch me so you can know. In the other gospel accounts, it says, like, he asked them for breakfast, like he eats food. <laughs> it's a physical, it's a physical resurrection. But this, is, this account is shocking for a second reason, because of the specificity with which Jesus speaks. He uses all the same terms that Thomas used when he was expressing doubt, but he wasn't there. Jesus talks about hands and nail prints in the hands or wrists, the Greek word for hand, can encompass this entire area. The, the, the hand being thrust into this, like he's quoting Thomas. So Thomas not only is getting the invitation that he wanted, but he's getting it with like a, a, a specificity that, that just conveys something otherworldly. And so the, the, the command to Thomas, stop disbelieving. 
Believe. Trust in me. Like rings true with him to such a degree that he cries out with a confession that is the most climactic in the entire book of John. I'll explain why, but just read it again. What does he say? My Lord and my God. I said it's the most climactic confession in the book of John. But you're probably thinking, does it seem that big a deal to me? Seems like they used the word Lord a lot around there in those days. You're right, they did. The Greek word kurios, Lord, is something that could be used to address any superior, like sir. It happens often. But the Jews knew when the word was being used with a lowercase l and a capital L. Just like we can figure out when we're talking about our own earthly father or the heavenly father, small f, capital F. Context delineated the difference. What makes Thomas address here not just a sir, is the attachment of the second word, my Lord. And my God, this is the first time in the entire book of John that someone has directly called Jesus God. John said it in the prologue at the beginning. This is the first time it's come on the lips of a human. And this phrase together is a huge deal. My Lord and my God is used in the Old Testament to refer none other than Yahweh himself. Listen to Psalm 25 verses 23 to 24 and, and see these same words. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. David is praying to like the God of the universe, and that title, my Lord, my God, like that, that's something that only the Jews would use to refer to like Yahweh, the highest, only true God. But listen to this. This is fascinating. And I'm going to have to quote somebody because I'm not this smart. But in the Greco-Roman world, that same phrase indicated that kind of divinity, even though most of them didn't know who Yahweh was. This is fascinating. One New Testament scholar explains it this way. He says, the Roman emperor Domitian, who was like AD 81 to 96 in particular, during his, he's writing, now he's ruling, excuse me, while John is writing the gospel. It's like late 80s, early 90s. He wished to be addressed in that day as Dominus et Deus Noster, my Lord, my God. This was the title for the Roman emperor who was supposedly deified. This was the title for Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. I mean, this is the most climactic confession that anyone could ever make. What he is saying is that this Jesus is the ultimate ruler, not just a derivative of God, but God himself. That is what Thomas believes. He's no longer doubting. But he is absolutely dependent 
on this one, this crucified and risen again Jesus. And so, as amazing as this confession is, as happy as we are that another one has come to believe, Jesus can reply. And John's commentary on this event will clarify that Thomas's faith in Jesus, though, is not the point. It'd be natural for us to think, hey, Justin, I know what time it is. It's about time for us to get to the main point. That's not the main point. This passage is about the commendation of belief in Jesus on the basis of biblical testimony, not eyewitness, I mean, not personal testimony. This story is about the commendation of belief in Jesus on the basis of biblical testimony. Just notice how it concludes. There's a commendation, a commendation. Jesus said in verse 29 to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then John adds this. The story's not over. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Don't miss the connection here. Here's the point of the story. It's about the basis of belief for incoming disciples. It's easy to be like, Oh man, well, that's really cool. I'm glad to know that Mary believed, and I'm glad to know that the other disciples believed, and I'm glad to know that John believed. But it's not about their belief, it's about yours. John jumps on this statement of Jesus commending belief when you can't see it to say, and this is what I want you to do. This is the reason why I wrote the whole book. This is the point. Not that other people believe, not that other people saw and experienced Jesus, but that you would see and experience Jesus through faith alone. And this is where things get practical for us, friends. This pronouncement of blessing is so compelling because it's easy for us to say, oh, blessed, I know what that means. It means a dopamine response in the brain. I'm happy. I feel good. I'm blessed. But blessed... In the context of the way that Jesus is saying it, it's like the Beatitudes. He's not just merely saying, you're physically happy. It's saying that you're the favored one of God. You're in his special blessing. You're not one of the cursed ones, Deuteronomy 29 and 30. You're one of the blessed ones. You're on the inside. It has less to do with your feelings and more about God's feelings for you. He says, even when you believe, and you cannot see, you're especially blessed. You were in the club. It'd be easy for us to think, let me put it this way, it'd be easy for us to think, man, they, the, they saw Jesus and their belief, man, that put them in like a unique category, like they're the elite. Jesus says the real elite are those who believe who didn't get to see. Those who believe the eyewitness testimony. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. This has so many implications for us, friends. First of all, I want you to be assured that your faith in Jesus, though it seems like it is struggling and up and down and not as confident as you want it to be, it is not subpar. 
It is commended. And I would say as an extension of that to all of us who care about the gospel going within our sphere of influence and around the world, that the eyewitness testimony of the apostles, the the biblical record of Jesus is not inferior. It's enough. It's enough. The issue here is not faith without evidence. The issue is faith without sight. I want you to know that what John is calling for here, especially if you're here today and you're not believing, this isn't some like existential leap. Like, well, I guess I'll trust this. You've got to trust something. There's evidence there. I mean, he's giving you eyewitness evidence. Like, there's reports on this. <laughs> People saw this. There was prophecy. The issue is faith without sight, not faith without evidence. I, I think of this, I told you the prolonged story a couple weeks ago about the Wright brothers and no one believing their flight for five years. You know, the same thing was true, well, at least in a more positive instance, you know, about the, um, the roundness of the earth. Think about this. People had figured out by math and all kinds of calculations, and by experience, like going around the planet one time, that this thing's round, it's not flat, you don't fall off into the abyss. But they'd never seen it until, what, the late 60s, and Russian astronauts get up and they finally see the curvature of the earth. And what they already believed had been verified by eyewitness testimony. But nobody was going around thinking like, ah, well, excuse me, most people weren't going around thinking like, no, the earth is not round. They truly believed it. And they had eyewitness testimony later. They're like, that's a valid form of being convinced of something. And Jesus is saying that epistemologically, that the doctrine of how you know things, like epistemologically, the superior source of knowledge is God's revealed word. Like, it is credible. And it is worthy of producing faith. It is the highest source of truth. But it is not unverified truth. It is verified truth. I mean, friends, the the quickest illustration of this is Psalm 22. I've just been reflecting on that when I went back to Pennsylvania to, to Rob's former church to preach. And that's the sermon that I preached. And I thought it was interesting, Rob, that it's dawned on me now that we're in the crucifixion of Jesus here. I'm like, here's David prophesying that the Messiah is going to suffer via crucifixion, and crucifixion wasn't invented for 600 more years. That's just one prophecy. So, like, we're talking about like the, the sacred scriptures verified, validated through eyewitness testimony. Think about the testimony, not just the prophetic scriptures, but the, the kind of people that they put forward as a witness. These guys would preach this message and die for it. Like a whole movement of people killing themselves. I know the guy trying to sell me whatever the newest thing is the door-to-door salesman are trying to sell me would do whatever he wants to convince me that I need mold remediation or a new roof or some new insect repellent or whatever people go and peddle these days. No offense if you're one of those people. But I seriously doubt they're going to die for that. The sacred word of God is reinforced by the, the prophetic 
scriptures, the eyewitness testimonies. And then here's the last evidence that points to the superiority of scripture. That is, resurrected lives. Resurrected lives. It's amazing. The change that happens when the old sinful you is dead and then Christ is alive and at work over the course of years and decades. We're just reminded of that this week. Miss Ione's birthday party here on Thursday. 88 years of life. And, and, and what is it that brings this just generational impact of good to children and to grandchildren and to churches. It's life. A resurrected life of one who believed in the Lord Jesus. That is what is going on. I, I say this to you, brothers and sisters, quickly, that in evangelism, the most important thing is not our testimony or our experience, but the testimony of the sacred Scriptures. Don't substitute anything else for it. Can I make it more practical? I'm not being mean, but I want to be practical. It is not your experience. People are like, you know what you really need to do? You need to craft a good testimony. You need to be able to share your story. Your story is not that big a deal compared to this story. You tell Jesus' story. We've bought into this big time. We've got to be careful. There's an old hymn that we used to sing when I was growing up. And um, I don't remember the title. I just remember the words. Serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. Um, I know that He is with me, whatever men may say. There's some other cute stuff in there. <laughs> and then it ends with, um, you ask me how I know He lives, and you know what the answer is? He lives within my heart. Um, Friends, I'm glad he lives within your heart. But even more clearly, he lives on the basis of credible eyewitness testimony of the apostles. And so we point people here first. Beware not only of your experience, but also beware of emotions. Like some kind of spiritual high is what's going to validate. That's not the case. Beware of evidences, always arguing, like digging around in the dirt, (laughs) trying to do your apologetics thing. Apologetics has its place. The Word is this best apologetic. Here's the last thing. The passage not only commends belief without sight, but also belief with the scripture. This is reinforced in verses 30 and 31, and we're done. In a rare move, John interrupts his story again. And I want you to know he's not done yet. This is not the conclusion of the book. This is the conclusion of this story. He jumps on the announcement of Jesus' blessing for those who have not seen, and then he commends what you can see. And notice it here in verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. He's like, he's done a ton. He's done so much more. But these, these things, just what you have here is enough. These things are written so that 
Y'all may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life on His name. Let me just clarify three things because I am calling for some of you today to believe. On the basis of what you've heard, what you've been hearing in John up to this point, My prayer and the prayer of our people has been that you would come to believe, to trust that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, I want to make this really clear. We normally read this as saying, oh, who is Jesus? Answer, the Christ, the Son of God. That was not the question that the original people in John were asking. They were asking this question, who's the Christ? Who's the Son of God? being trained in Judaism, they were already expecting like God's hero to come on the scene. The Christ is the anointed one, the one that God would send to be the rescuer of the world, specially enabled by the Spirit. They're like, who's the Christ? And then they saw these other passages about this Son of God figure, especially in Psalm 2. Who's this Davidic king that's going to come and rule and write the world? Here he is, it's both of them, he's both, it's Jesus, it's Jesus of Nazareth, the one crucified, risen again, that's the Christ, that's the Son of God, and here's what's called for you to do. Not behave, but believe. Trust. Accept, receive. I like the word trust. Believe sometimes just means like intellectual assent alone. Faith sometimes sounds like it's some kind of like spiritual experience, and it is. But trust, depend, count on the fact that here's your hero, here's your Lord, here's your king. This is God. But that's not all. He doesn't say just believe in Jesus as Lord so that you can pass the end time theology exam. Here's where we finish. He says believe so that you may have life in his name. Life. So many of us are looking for life in all the wrong places. And the biblical record says, here it is. It's not in prominence or position or possession or pleasures produced by stuff or sex. Life is in Him. For the Thomasistic, (laughs) the Thomas-like among us, you should be asking a hard question right now. Um, Appreciate the promise of life, Justin, but... I'm kind of breathing and my heart's beating right now. I'll take a pass. I'm alive. You're not alive. The way that John defines life here is different than anything that you would experience merely from a beating heart and a functioning brain. The life that he describes is favor with God. In John 3, It's the experience of the kingdom. Like, to be not the rebel who will experience one day God's wrath, but the subject who will benefit from His protection. You're you're on His team now. Like, He looks at you favorably. 
Later on, Jesus would say, hey, look, there's a resurrection and everybody's going to be resurrected from the dead, but some unto life, some unto judgment. Physical existence is not the issue. The question is physical existence with or without the favor of Almighty God. And what he's saying is you can have life when you believe. And I want you to know something. I say this to you who are already in Christ. You have life now. Like he approves of you now. You are his subject now. It is good to be under his lordship and his dominion right now. It is a better life. And it will lead to eternal enjoyment and pleasure and satisfaction. Blaise Pascal, pretty smart guy, he warns us. He says, the Stoics say, retire within yourselves. It is there you will find your rest. And that is not true. Others say, go out of yourselves, seek happiness in amusement. And this is not true. Illness comes. Happiness is neither without us or within us. It is in God. Both without us and within us. I love that. God is outside us. And yet in Christ, he comes in us. And we now have life. But only for those who believe. John Owen once wrote that there's a sense in which guys like me, a minister of the gospel, only have two jobs. Only two. He says the first is the evangelistic challenge. Persuading those who are under the dominion of sin that this is the truth about them. One of my challenges here today is that some of you would believe for the first time. But Owen points out a second obligation of a minister of the gospel. The pastoral one. And that is persuading those who are no longer under sin's dominion that this is who they really are. That all is well. That you have life. That you have peace in Jesus. And I pray that God would enable that too. And so that's why we finish the service today with communion. I'm going to ask our ushers if they would make their way to the back. The musicians make their way to the front. And we're about to pray. But God has given us a physical sign and assurance for those of us who believe and are in Jesus to be reminded that His body was already broken for us. His blood was already shed for us. All is well with our souls. We're invited to the table of the King. We are His subjects. We are His family. We are alive. But if you're here today and you do not believe or you don't know if you yet have that life, I would encourage you to just contemplate. Don't participate. But just contemplate what it would mean for you to believe. And if you have questions, talk to us afterward. Let me pray to prepare us for communion together. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have indeed in many ways erred and strayed and done our own thing. We've broken your laws. We've resisted your good rule. And yet this passage reminds us that if we have repented of our sin and relied on you 
in your son alone in faith, confessing him to be the risen Lord, King, boss, owner. All is well. It's not just the cessation of hostility, but the presence of good. So convince us of these things in this time for those who are in Christ and those who are not. As evidenced by maybe even baptism being withheld from them. I pray that they would see the testimony of the Scriptures today and believe so that they too could enjoy the family of God, the life that comes through the Son. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.